0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto the famed Locust Walk, University of Pennsylvania campus on a gorgeous, picture perfect, I would say, August morning. Happy Wednesday to you. Cade Massey here, hosting with my buddies Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner. Morning, fellas. Morning. morning. How you doing? Indeed. It's a beautiful morning. Doing well, doing well. Hope you guys are. We're going to be around for the next two hours. You guys can join us, listeners. Wish you would. Numbers 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 1-844- 844 942-7866 or give us an email business radio at businessradioatsiriusxm.com business Matty Dat standing by he'll take your email real time we'll answer it real time or you can email us during the week we're replayed 4 or 5 times over the next week if it's not 8 to 10 a.m. Wednesday it's a replay but you can still reach out by email you can tweet at us anytime our handle up there at WMoneyBall at WMoneyBall send us a question Send us an opinion. Send us an over-under. Our last segment of the week every week is the over-under, and we take input from you guys. Normal show today, except for Eric Bradlow being gone, we are going to have guests at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour talking a little golf, talking a little baseball. I suspect somewhere we're going to talk a little football. We might. We might. You might. It's that time of year. Oh, God. Shane and Ann. (laughs) Shane (laughs) and Adi.
1: You know, it's... it's, it's, uh...
2: Are you, are you not excited for the okay? So season? I'm excited, but I you know your
0: team your team has a new quarterback. I mean, it should be a moment Jets, of optimism. You, you mean, uh,
2: it, indeed, it is optimism. I'm trying to figure out what to think about it. I mean, preseason is obviously doesn't matter, but everybody's talking about the quarterbacks that were drafted last year, and even in the first preseason game, you have long reports of how they did. Yeah. Can you tell me? Does it mean anything? Should I be paying attention? Should I know you're paying attention, but should I be paying attention?
0: So the 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 the, the story is. As it is, and I think every sport, team records don't mean anything. I mean, but individual just, performances, yeah, individual performances yeah. mean something, absolutely. Okay. absolutely. Or, or absolutely.
1: the absence of them, like you know. Uh, Christian Hackenberg a couple seasons ago not even being able to get on the football well, yeah. field for okay, example yeah, not but that was the telling
2: so I think so Mayfield Sam was Darnold. very good Darnold yeah. was decent and Rosen didn't do much and a yeah, couple like I mean these are the big the big
0: four from last year right yeah so I have nothing well, a memory. I don't have a report on Josh Allen from the Bills yet I haven't heard
2: no that. report on that either yeah. No.
0: But Lamar Jackson, I got to see him throw a couple pretty passes in in practice last week. He's had some pretty runs, obviously, but he's not expected to start. The Darnold – Darnold Darnold and Mayfield are like, these guys could be important to the team this year.
1: Yeah. The the part I always struggle with, the kind of narratives that I never know what to do with, is, you know, you often have – you know, kind of veterans that come into camp and they're reported to be in the best shape of their careers, or they—they like you really seem to be, you know, putting in this extra effort. Uh, Joe Flacco is an example of one this year. I kind of, I keep hearing about how. You know, their, their, their uh, acquisition of Lamar, their drafting of Lamar Jackson. So he lit a fire under Joe that's Flacco. Right. And now right. he's, he's really on the same page as his receivers now. And he's like, you know, trying extra hard. I mean, it makes you wonder why he wasn't doing that up until because now. Because he's
0: human. Because he's but human. We, we tend to think that these guys, because they're professional athletes, are performing at their max at yeah. all times. And that's just not the way human beings work. I mean, the, there there are exceptions that an are elite
1: quarterback that. like Joe Flacco has trouble with motivation. Is what you're saying? Hold on,
2: did I like, hear on, a on, dig? on average?
0: Season? Was there a little dig in here?
2: Well, <laughs> and you are talking about the, one of the age old issues, which is when someone doesn't perform as well as they perform in an pr- iter- earlier iteration. Is it because of motivation, or is it because of lack of
0: conditioning, or is it just bad luck? Well, well injury. I mean, yeah, what yeah, what is yeah. what, well, responsible? We, we do know. I mean, I I, I don't. And I think this is pretty well established. These contract year effects are real. Mm-hmm. I mean, motivate and people respond. Turns out even professional athletes respond to incentives so that the, the idea is that in the last year of a contract, they're going to be a free agent following this season. And so the stats they have this season are especially impactful in their compensation. And all of a sudden the guys play better. That's, I don't think that's a surprise anybody, but people act like that's a big deal. They're have, just humans. They're just that's just the way incentives work. Have you actually hear,
1: seen anything about that in baseball? Yeah, You'd I think have it'd seen. Be, it. Like, have people actually looked at the kind uh, of the yeah. contract
2: years? Has there been kind it, of conclusive? It, conclusive? I don't know. So, I actually have a student one of our, one of our undergraduates. He came to me as a good undergraduate would do with with work already done, and that was his project that he had worked on. And this was his invitation to kind of try to study more statistics. And his project was looking just at this contract year effect. And the I can't vouch for all its details. But the, there was an effect there, without a question, and it was a measurable and an important effect. Was it statistically significant? The answer there was meh. So right. if you believe it, if you believe these things, you're convinced. If you're if you're a skeptic, you're still waiting for more data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking p values in the in the lo- you know, the low you know, 0.1-ish, 0.05-ish range. And and w- what that means to me with is that...
0: Data you sh- with enough the, data, given the data that you have in baseball,
2: yeah. you probably should be seeing more reliable effects than that. Well, yeah, I mean, is, that's right. There's a lot of people who are up for And agencies, I mean, it's kind of the, the ideal
1: test case for this type of thing because it's, you know... Um, among all the sports, you know, I feel like player performance in baseball is mo- as individual as one can get, right. right? I mean, that's you right.
2: know, I, yeah. But these Joe are,
1: Flacco, you could always argue, oh, well, it wasn't really a motivation issue for him in previous years. He didn't have receivers, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in baseball, I think it's
2: a little bit more. The I thing think is, you can but, isolate
1: but the actual but there performance. There are, go ahead. There's
2: I, a, just an enormous amount of variation in baseball. Yeah. And that's the thing that people – one of the themes of our Monday, Monday, Monday Ball Academy was the standard error of, a, of an average. And we just talked about it all the time. It's 20 points. Points plus or minus on batting averages, that's just... That's just there. Well, say, that's say, a full say, season. Say,
0: say what that means again. Um,
2: so that be- basically means whatever your true innate batting average is, and that could be OBP or so whatever say, it is.
0: Say I'm a three fifty. I'm just going to make myself a three fifty. Oh right. yeah, <laughs> three
2: thirty is a three <laughs> three fifty. We'd be talking about a, you. I you'd, you'd come up in conversation. <laughs> that, that is not like, a good ah. number. I, I, let me. I mean, I, I, that's that's such a two fifty. Do you know how many standard deviations? I'm going to go, th- go three hundred. Like, Give me a three hundred okay. and work through these. So so three hundred means you're 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 an extraordinary here. You're one of the the top ten hitters in the league, yeah. um, and if um, that's, that's were, your true value, yep. you're 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 quite likely to look like a, just an average hitter, a good, better than
0: average hitter, uh, but decent hitter. Two eighty. How do you assess what someone's true? You, you don't ever know you don't, that. Right? You right? yeah, so you're so just, you just can, estimating over, the, over right. a lifetime, and then you're observing variation around that what you believe to be the true underlying... right. But
2: value. we can understand the standard deviation without knowing what truth is. So, by with basic models, we can understand uncertainty
1: and the kind of null sort of hypothesis as you go into this sort of like kind of contract year incentive study with is that there is no real you you know that some players just get lucky and happen to like you know with with this natural variation they happen to have a good year in the final year of their contract and therefore they're rewarded for that but then you know that's so if that no hypothesis is true, that's a little bit sobering for the team that signs their good that's right. he, he signs that's this right. player to this good contract because they may not be getting you know as much yes. as they planned on.
0: So personally, I believe both of these effects. Yeah. I believe there are motivational effects that impact performance in contract years on average, yeah. but also that on average, conditional on seeing someone perform really well in their contract year. That there's a chance piece in there, and probably a large chance piece, and you'll see regression to the mean the following year. Both yeah. of these things can be true; they probably yep. are both
1: yep. true. And you have to factor in like things like age
2: trajectories into all this as well. Once yep. you really get down to it, and so. also selection bias: the people who get a contract are going to be the ones who did decently that that final year of the contract. There are many people who are hoping to get a contract in their following you'll do badly and just just retire. So, Adi, Adi,
0: but play this out, make it a, a more concrete for us one last time before we leave it. Take this 300 hitter. That's right. And walk me through a ten-year career. So if he's at if he's at his true mean, which is three hundred, he's a top ten hitter in the That's league. Right. So over, how many seasons are we going to observe at other levels of performance?
2: So you're going to see a, you're going to see probably one season at around three thirty. Okay, uh, for sure. I'm not for so sure. So he's the best hitter in the
0: league once in his ten. He's going career.
2: to win. He's going to win the batting title, maybe or absolutely compete for okay. the batting title. One once. Of the and and uh, one one of the seasons he's going to, he's going to be at almost league average. Okay, he's gonna, I mean, which is amazing, mm-hmm. um, but typically he's going to look between two eighty and about three twenty,
0: and and but he's going to spend a number of seasons league average, a little bit above league yeah. average, even though he is if, if we, really could, if we could observe it, yep. one of the best ten.
2: Right, so that's why you see someone like Altuve who, who's hitting now again three thirty. 330 is so far ahead of the rest of the league that you can expect him to be one of the leaders every season. That's why when you said 350. I'm like,
3: okay. <laughs> Whoa, that yeah. is so
2: far out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and but more commonly, so one of the one of the games I play with students is I draw up a fake bat, uh, batting lineup where everyone is a league average hitter in their truth and then I generate essentially fake seasons, then I order them up according to an ordinary, the way you would order an ordinary line of batting average, uh, a lineup, and then I show them a real one and I put them next to each other and I say, can you tell the difference? And it's impossible to tell the difference. You just can't see. There'll be one hitter hitting 300 and there'll be one hitter hitting 210 or 200. I'll put the 200 hitter at the bottom, the 300 at the top, and then I'll kind of orient them according to what we tend to think is a lineup, and then I'll put them next to a real one, and you can't tell. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the background of noise that makes it very hard to see and learn truth in these settings, even baseball. How
0: mm-hmm. much variation do you think you exhibit in your job performance over the course of Oh, a that's year a good year question. Well, we can't even measure our job performance,
2: well, but we yeah. measure papers per year. <laughs> we've
0: been talking about this thing that we can't measure, which yeah. is like true ability, and now we have... Another domain in which we can't measure true ability, and we also have noisy measurement of actual performance. Right. Yeah. But we still make inferences on people's performance all the time. We do. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, I mean, I guess the closest thing to something quantifiable, and I would, he- I hesitate to spring to bring this up because I have. Deep issues with how this is quantified, but our teaching evaluations, we could look at the variation year to year in our teaching evaluations, and I even have taught the same course same course, same section, many different, different years, different yeah. and so you could kind of get a bead for our variation based on that. But I don't think that's how, our variation. How, how much does well, your... Right. There's other stuff that goes into that, and it's not a great measure, but...
0: But how much does your teaching vary across a semester? Like, let's call that a
1: season. Oh, yeah. You're going
0: to teach all spring, say, Shane. How yeah. much are you going to bump up and down, and if... if in, in how well you deliver the goods in the classroom. Of the Pretty
1: substantially,
2: I think. I think. Is that right? I think, yeah. Well, the material will change. From Some classes are yes, better I mean, and
1: some, some classes some, are worse. That's like
0: facing different pictures. Some some that's right.
1: Por- yeah, some portions of my material are more or less compelling but to I'm- me. My caffeination level yeah, is going to vary. Turn it
0: from you, you don't have any, week you don't have week. any contract years, do you? I do not. Well, we, well no. Yes, kind of. We you kind do. of do. Ten There's the tenure promotion. There's the tenure year year. promotion. That, that's your process. lifetime contract.
2: But Kate, I want to want to point it back to your ear. I think one of the things that happens with with classes is they they make a decision about whether they like you or not or don't like you. Yeah. And then they stick with that
0: regardless of what you've done
2: afterwards. Yeah,
0: I was playing with this a little bit because I think in sports we tend to say, you know, my gosh, if we see this much variation in sports, what it must look like in the real world. But sports, they get all these more or less independent draws. Yeah. And in life we have these we have much more autocorrelation, I believe, for institutional reasons. You get good boss or you get a good client or you get these kind of biases where your scores are dependent on these first impressions that 60 you know first year MBAs have of you so yeah i think there's i think there's much less independence and that changes i think i think there's still a lot of it outside your control but it changes the the inference on chance for sure i think uh, anyway it's a complicated thing but my my big point was we we can observe performance so much more cleanly in sports and we have this problem with it how much more complicated is it yeah and we and we make per- inferences on people's performance all the time and we and we and we're surely making the same mistakes that we think managers. We sure and fans, do.
2: Oh well, yeah. we we Shane and I have not, I know we do this in our own department. Okay, here's one thing that's <laughs> clear:
0: the Red Sox are even further above the Yankees than they were the last time. Yeah, the Yankees
2: basically went seven and two in that or six and one in the last. Oh week. no,
1: the Yankees are probably going to finish with the second best record in base all of baseball, and, then and we'll have be to 10 play that out. one game playoff. Yep.
0: So the Red Sox currently are projected at one eleven yep. wins. What tell me about well, tell me about all-time great number of wins in a season in well, well, baseball. Where is one eleven? Seattle,
2: falling? I think, is number one at like one fifteen or one sixteen. One sixteen. So like yeah, Seattle
1: in nineteen ninety nine, something like, like that. that. Won one hundred sixteen games and lost in the and then playoffs. lost immediately in the playoffs. Was Ken basically.
0: Griffey Jr. on that team?
1: Yes. Was Rodriguez was as well, I believe. Yeah. As talking, was uh, it was a ridiculous. I think Randy Johnson was on that team as mm-hmm. well.
0: Oh, My gosh, pitcher. there were some big names back,
1: yeah. back then on yeah, the yeah, Mariners. Well, to win yeah.
2: 116 games, you got to be pretty good.
1: Yeah. Edgar um, Martinez? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the telling thing is it did not matter in the least once they hit the playoffs that they had won those 160. You Red Sox, Sox
0: fans keep on reminding yourself of that? Is that like how you I mean, that fun- I mean, certainly,
1: you know, it's if Shane, it, 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 you're prone to negativity, as most <laughs> Red Sox well, fans is, are, um, you, that's, that's what you're kind of hanging your hat on right now, because it's hard to look at this team and see anything really particularly negative. Okay, so who will they so play? So really, chance variation is kind of going to be their biggest enemy at this point.
2: Who will they play in the second round? The winner of the, there's a, they'll, they'll
1: probably play the Yankees.
2: Is that how it'll work? The,
1: yeah, I mean, because they'll have the be- the the, the team with the, the worst record. For- they'll
2: play the rank. They'll play the Yankees if the Yankees win, even if they, yeah, they yeah. I mean, win. so they, so they
1: don't recede based on the kind of the the, the, right. the, the record of the wild card team. So they'll play. I, I think the Red Sox are lined up to play whoever wins that wild card game.
0: Right. It'll. It, Hold on. Remind me how it works. So you've yeah. got you've got three division winners. That's right. And a wild card uh, so, playoff so, game. So the wild card playoff game that go, the winner exactly. of that goes to the to best. The best, of the, best of the division so winners. Two wild card teams. Yeah. And right now the Yankees have the first one locked up pretty good. though. The A's yeah. are on a run. The A's are on a run, and only three game it looks to be like three games, three and a half games back of the Yankees.
1: That's right. So, um, but the Mariners, I guess. So. The Yankees, you know, the Yankees and Athletics are kind of currently slotted into I that see. wild card yeah, game. Yeah, the yeah, Mariners would be the next team to sort of challenge. They're yep, definitely on the opposite of a run yep. right now. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, the Yankees have definitely kind of solidified their place in that one-game playoff. The
0: Yankees may catch the Astros, I guess, is the question. If they can catch the division leader Astros, they would bump the Astros down to How about that, a Yankees-Astros wild card for the A.L.? Yeah. High-powered. How no, would you... No, Astros are going to win their division. I don't No, know, no, they, no. The, at the
1: Athletics are only two games back of the Astros yeah. right now. Oh, I see, so, I see, I see.
0: So if the Athletics c- catch right, right. the if Astros... The, uh, uh, that's what you meant. I see. Then okay. the Astros wow. and the
1: Yankees, so you'll have to play the one Astros. One, in, one, oh, God.
0: Did y'all see that A's play? <laughs> Did you <laughs> Was that the AL championship last year? Was that the yeah. ALCS?
1: It was amazing.
2: It was an um, amazing playoff series. Well, then the Yankees lost two years ago in, the, in that first play against, uh, in that one game with the Astros.
1: Yeah, I guess the Astros have not been the Yankees ago. out two oh, years ago. Oh, yeah, they have.
2: Okay. Well, the Astros beat the Yankees in a, in a full playoff series. Yes, the Yanke- so they beat them in a one-game yeah, yeah. playoff.
1: Yeah, that, that really. ALCS last year was unbelievable. It was a great, was a great series. Really.
2: So how are the, I woke uh, up early in the morning in Israel to listen to that, 2.30 in the morning.
0: <laughs> That's yeah. devotion. That's yeah. good. That's impressive. How are the A's doing this? They're, they continue to be, you know, low budget. And the last few years, they haven't done that much. And, and did they make moves at the trade deadline? Or they No, didn't? they
2: didn't. I mean, they, they, if you look at the A's, it's hard, first of all, it's hard to predict and maybe it's hindsight or resulting. I love that term. Um, looking at what's happened and going backwards and saying, let's see the, in the process, what fits it. But they've assembled the, the modern team, a lot of fly ball hitting, home run hitting. Um, low-average um, t- team, t- good defense, um, ex- excellent bullpen, and mm-hmm. that's just the, the way to do it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I look at their record and I say luck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, their run differential is like, you it's, know, it's, less
0: than half of like the run it's differential about a third, of the Astros. It's about a third of the, yeah. It's yeah. A third of the Astros. It's you almost know. exactly a third of the Astros.
1: A- and when I've seen that over time, like when your run differential really doesn't line up so much with your actual wins, like you're overwinning Good. for your run differential, yeah. there's luck involved in that, but the main thing is bullpen.
0: Okay. Did y'all happen to see this highlight from the from the A's this past week? The, I think it might have been oh the, the center fielder. Oh yes. He makes this running play in something the outfield. Left fielder, yeah. N- left field uh-huh. running, running, tracks down a fly ball that he wasn't supposed to catch, and the guy on first base had not tagged up because he didn't expect this guy to catch it. He plants and just throws this bomb down a the first bomb. base, and it tag was him amazing. out. Amazing. Ninety
2: two miles an hour, three hundred and twenty feet. I think that was the recording. Yeah, something like that. Yeah.
0: Oh, it was remarkable. It was a good, good allow. And it was, ta- it, it was a
2: force. So he didn't have yeah. to tag him. So it was, it was amazing. Right, right,
0: right. The, the, uh, the first baseman played that with such a plum. He was like so, like he's like he like mocked the guy. And when he was catching it. it, was like this is so routine. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna tag him <laughs> out or whatever, forcing him out. Um, is the NL one of the themes that has emerged in recent weeks? Is that the NL race is just Looney Tunes? Yeah, and will be a great fun thing to keep an eye on over. No, the No, it, it's
1: amazing. Like it's kind of the opposite of. The AL, I mean, the AL, basically, the division races are all but decided at this point. I'll even, I, I should touch wood when I say that, but whatever. Um, and, but the NL, every single division race is within a game or so, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, in addition to that, you've got two or three teams per. per division that are still in contention for that wild card. There's mm-hmm. been very few teams in the NL that have kind of essentially been eliminated from playoff contention at this I'm, point. I mean, it's exciting. Seriously, yeah.
0: Seriously. I mean,
1: and I think it's extra exciting because it's a lot of teams we did not predict at the start of the season. Including our Phillies. contending. Phillies, Diamondbacks. Including yeah. the Phillies, the Atlanta Braves. Right.
2: Colorado Rockies. We talked to
0: the Rockies, Rockies Arizona
1: Diamondbacks yeah. you just <laughs> mentioned. you know, yeah, I mean, but, these the, are, but the
2: ones we predicted are all there. The only one who's, who's uh, of the eight. That the we National. I mean I guess it's the, Nationals the Nationals are the only one That are that are that are dragging their heels at six at five hundred. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um,
0: Okay. So that'll be fun going in. And baseball is this is the time of year really kind of starts heating up from a from a from a playoff perspective. So if you don't have a rooting interest, you can at least kind of watch the standings to see who's nipping who at the wire. Um, How about the PGA? Adi, you texted I, I, and said I, I, you were watching golf. I did. I
2: did. For the first time in my entire life, I watched golf deliberately. Now, so that, I mean, <laughs> in the sense that I have seen golf in the background when it's been on. Right, right. But this is the actual time. I actually ran home and turned it on.
0: Really? Because you saw the see, woods was in well, the running. I saw the
2: woods was in the running. And, and I'm, I'm sure this, my, my, uh, my uh, performance, if you will, was replicated by many, many, yeah, many totally. millions of people. I bet the ratings were through the roof. Well, I would have um, loved to have
0: seen the ratings grow over the course over of the Over the course of the of tournament. His his, last, his, right. Just the last round. as Tiger. Tease off whatever one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon, and he starts nit- chipping away at the lead. I bet that I bet people were just pouring into the. So
2: I, my quick observations were: first of all, I'm really enjoying the the analytics that they're putting on the screen. This is making my enjoyment of watching the the golf much. better. So is
0: this from our buddy Mark Brody? Is it strokes strokes game? Well,
2: they don't. I wasn't. They weren't actually those kind. I would have loved to have seen that. Absolutely, have loved to see that. I didn't see that. Maybe I, I missed it. But they just have a lot of um, trajectories that they, they they Oh, they
0: they show like peak height on ball they
2: show all this stuff and and it just gives you a good sense of what happened i i watch a, a golf um tournament and i watch the individual plays and i just don't see anything because it's it not is a game nice that i
1: have that context i mean i remember watching golf back in the 80s when i was you know a teenager i was a cool teenager back in the 80s trust <laughs> <Yeah>. me um <laughs> And uh, and I mean, you would they would hit it off the tee, and then you would just you sort just of see it, it, it drop like, in what? the fairway. <laughs> yeah, and you're <laughs> like, well, I guess that's what happens. So, I mean, exactly. you know, there was, there was <laughs> not as much sort of you. You did not get kind of the three dimensional sort of view of what was actually yeah, yeah. happening. So, so they're really the
2: providing course. that with with the uh, with the technology. It was great to watch Tiger. <laughs> I mean,
0: it it gives you a moment of anticipation because you can see it better. You can have your own judgment of whether yeah. it's online or not. Yeah. So it just adds this experience. It's momentary, but it, it's in every golf shot, yeah. which is exactly what it's like to play golf. Because when you yeah. hit the ball, there's like this moment right. of, of anticipating you know, it, and forecasting yeah. where it's going to go. Yeah. So, so yeah.
2: the other thing I noticed was that maybe this is just the people who are competing, but they, they look like athletes in a way that I don't remember golf golfers. Well, to look like I mean, Kafka
0: in particular. Yeah, I mean, okay, he looks like our he leader looks like, looks like he could be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he looks like a Russian strongman. But man. even even Tiger Woods looks looks in shape.
2: Like he's, I mean, he's more in
0: shape than I think he's ever been.
2: And that was something that was remarkable to me. An observation: uh, Tiger seemed to be hitting it wildly. And I mean, just, oh, he was the, not having a good time it, off the tee t- box. off the tee. And, yeah, and, yeah, and, and yet and, somehow he's hitting birdie after birdie. My understanding was that that, that last round was his best one ever.
0: Yeah. Uh it was it was in his best or it, was, in a, in a, it was his best major score without winning or something like that. Yeah. it wasn't his best like round. Yeah. I couldn't have been, a couldn't have been his best well, round. It was final round. I think, I think it was a 32, final 32, round. 64 is a really good major round. Period. So I can believe that that was his best final round. When he won at Pebble by, you know, he lapped the field. He was 10 strokes a ahead of the field. Yeah that must have been a crazy round as well so that so was, it was the his best to... best losing score in a major losing score but it was 14. it was
2: really remarkable to watch and just seeing everyone cheer and and there's a lot of festivity around i don't think there's an argument he's the best golfer ever and uh here he is after five, six years since winning anything, ten years since being great yeah. and there he is again and it's remarkable to watch. So. Okay, so
0: what are we doing with our beliefs because I've been short the Tiger Woods story yeah. kind of from the beginning and I'm beginning to have to revise. We have, right? And we have
1: to dig out. What, what over-under have we had recently on that? I, I'm trying to think. I think it was like the number Lesson of top one. five. No, I think it was I, was it actually in, in I thought it was of number of victories, top five victories. Five finishes or something like that. Maybe it was uh, number of victories well, well, in the majors look, over we're the gonna, next five we'll, years. We'll talk
0: about over-unders at the end yeah. of the show because we have started recording them. I know. And and my understanding is that I'm in last place now because we started recording. <laughs> We've had one result. We've and had one was, result. And it was where Tiger was going to end up in this tournament. Yeah, I think and it was the uh, whether was or, like or not he
1: finished in the top 12 top or something 12. like that. Yeah. I did not well, – I, I, I got it. Yeah.
0: You, so Shane is leading. I'm last. And you and Eric are tied for – No, a, I didn't a, enter. A, a no yeah. no yeah. entrance yeah. Yeah. yet. We'll do more over-unders at the end of the at the end of the show but but so brooks kapka is remarkable because one he's won his second major of the year that doesn't happen that much mm-hmm. I, don't, I i I've thought about that on the way in today I wish third major
2: in the last couple of years right third
0: major in the last two or three years he's got three majors before the age of 30 there aren't Many golfers. But and, I think he only has three
2: majors out of his four wins total. So he yeah, kind of is over-representative he, in the majors. That's okay, right. So
0: let me give you a few other golfers who have these disproportionately high number of wins that are majors. And tell me what they have in common. Okay? So Nick Faldo. Don't, hold on. Nick Faldo. Savvy Ballesteros. Patrick Harrington. These are like three of the highest six or so. What did those three golfers have not in American. common? Not American. They're not American. They're not playing on the U.S. tour. So Brooks Kapka, even though he's American... When he came out of college, the, the story, as I was told this, that he, he went and played Europe because he wanted to travel and kind of, you know, experience things, which is fantastic, right? Because kid's probably not going to be that competitive on the U.S. tour anyway. So he goes over there. He wins over there. But that doesn't count as PGA Tour victories. So he, even though he's an American, his record looks more like, you know, Nick Faldo won yeah. six, six majors and only nine other tournaments on the PGA Tour. Nick's one of the great golfers of our generation. Yeah. Um, and it's, because but it's
1: true. He would disappear. He'd show up for the Masters, win that, and then just, and then he just goes disappear play again. The whatever
0: yep. the heck in Munich or something, you know. Yeah. So, so we, it's a little bit distorted that way. But I can tell you something about Cap. I said it? I wish we should have this clip because after the British Open, uh, Rufus was up, Peabody was up. We spent some time together the week leading into the British Open, and we were talking about his golf stats. And he had this model. He had this. He had this. He had this analysis that said. How do the golfers perform relative to his expectations for them going into tournaments? Okay, so he has got he has to bet these things. So he has good models for forecasting how a golfer is going to perform in a tournament. And he just asks, in all the major golf tournaments, I can look at deviations from expectation and I can rank golfers. And you can think of that as one way of looking at, do some guys up their game? For majors, so it's an if expectation
1: believe. based on all their tournaments. That's right. His, uh, but then you're just applying for an effect, you know, based right, on the, majors. That's yeah, right.
0: That's, yeah, that's right. right. So this, and he hadn't done proper shrinkage and stuff, and so we can't say much about reliability. But I can tell you that Capco was at the top of that list, and it was not close. And that was a mid-July observation, mm-hmm. and it, that's not a based on wins. That's based on you know strokes on all the rounds in major golf tournaments. Was not close. We mentioned it after the open, and here the c- kid comes along and does it again. Yeah. And he felt, you know, he faced some pressure. Those guys have to. He Woods put it on him. Woods had a phenomenal round, front nine and back nine. Put it on him, and he held up. It was it was impressive. So Adi, after watching golf deliberately for the first time in your life, you what, know, what, yeah, exactly. I had a great time. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> All right. How Tiger dependent was it? Uh, uh, <laughs> I know it fairly. Pulled, I know it pulled. It yeah. pulled you there, but w- once you were there, was it still Tiger dependent?
2: Um, no, actually, I mean, it was certainly Tiger dependent and that was certainly, and he was certainly featured in almost all the action that I was watching. Um, I, if I, if I knew the other players a little bit better then I would say it would be less Tiger dependent, but at this point it's, I'd say it's at least 50, 50, it was, it was an enjoyable, it was very exciting because there was, you, you, obviously the thing is I I really did feel that the Capco was really, he, he, he had the tournament. I never thought that Tiger was really competing. Oh, I don't know.
0: It. Midway through that back nine, it was down to a stroke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Capka so, wasn't making his birdie putts. Mm-hmm. But before the tiger, tiger, tiger cracked one, he was, he was tied with like five other people, so no, there was no, a crowd nah, uh, nah, coming nah, behind. Well, it, there there was a moment where it was down to just a couple of folks. Just before Kapka dropped, finally made a birdie putt and and, and woods put mm-hmm. it in the woods. He did put it in the woods. What
2: well, does that mean? I mean, how does a tell me about golf that, that such a what does it mean to a player to put it in there? How common is that? Is that like dropping a fly ball? I mean, in the what woods? Is it? Is yeah. It, is it like really happens
1: at... to
0: me like every hole, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: right. I mean, it... World no, great golfer, how, how often do they just completely you know, flub their oh, fairway shots? It happens. Wish it happens.
0: happens. Not yeah. the fairway shot. Off the tee. Off the um, tee. So it's his, right. whatever that was, 16 or 17, was off the tee. Big right. It, it is unusual to see a leader, you know, that good a golfer, that competitive in a major tournament, Crank it that far right. I mean, now that, like you said, the production quality on golf has gotten yeah. so good, so you see the little arc as it goes up. You're like, ooh, that is bad. <laughs> that's a, and that's my that's question. I, mean, you know I, would have I, done. I was wondering, what is that like?
2: What is it like in other sports? What's the comparative? It's
0: so, it's so assuring. You, but the thing is, you see professional golfers do that.
2: Yeah, so I, that's it, what it, I it get.
0: happens. It happens, and it's so assuring when it happens because that's our common experience. I mean, it's like I mean, it's not that. like
1: that's you're probably right, the right, right. of like a ball through the legs kind of like. Is it? I That's
2: extremely rare in no, baseball. No, it's
0: not. I think it's more common. I think it's that. more I, common. Yeah, it's that's, that's, that's far, what I think was interesting. Like
1: uh, that much of a f- shot flood. Yeah,
0: I mean, that was that buckner esque. I mean, what are we looking at? No, not at all, right? No, I mean, that's no. It's you know, it's like maybe maybe. Yeah, it's hard Maybe to Maybe just like a
1: baseball. fielding error or yeah, something like, a little like that the would the ball be more out of the, the frequency, mm, okay. of, you know? Yeah. Um, or
0: stumbles a little bit, just picks it out of the glove a little slow. Even yeah. then, I think it's probably more common than that, okay. I'm going to guess.
2: well So that was that. was that's the kind of thing that I felt surprised at. Um, a missing a putt at 25 feet or making it, those are extremely exciting. Yeah. <laughs> that, so that twenty-five foot putt, he, he did to win, but he didn't just really just a short isn't that
0: funny to say yeah. that making a putt is really exciting. I mean, it is that you, can, that you can imbue that something as placid as putting with that kind of right. you know energy. Is, well, there's
1: is, like anticipation while it's actually. I, I mean, like there's. Most sporting kind of like events have anticipation leading up to the thing, but crescendo. The, the you, 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 you don't yeah. typically have an extended ki- moment, an extended moment like where that, like, is right? It like work? a is long it work? Is it a work? putt. You actually build anticipation <laughs> while the thing's happening. Uh huh. I think that's relatively unique in field, sports. Field goals in, in football.
2: Yeah, well, well, the mean, crowds
1: are screaming in football,
2: so it doesn't. It's not serene. Yeah, like it, it it,
1: the closest thing I think you have is like the run up to a penalty kick, or like you know, like a, uh, like like a penalty shot in hockey, where the actual person. There, there's time for anticipation to build up while they're actually in motion. But
0: that, but I thought you were talking about that happens even in the great moments in baseball, like, you know, ninth inning, playoff, two out, full count, that kind of moment. There's a lot of that that baseball. There's that
1: anticipation, but then, like, the, the actual action the of the act pitch is, is instantaneous same almost. As, same, same with, with pen- com-
0: same as penalty kicks. Yeah. yeah, but the, but you're right. Golf has this this. There's this between the execution and the outcome. Yeah. there's this unknown, and you get to experience that yeah. for a few moments in a way that you don't in in most golf sports. and baseball.
2: I think has a lot of observer characteristics in common, yeah. such as such as long breaks between extremely high and interesting moments. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the yeah, kind, and, I mean, the and, 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 could, and the
1: psychological component that, like, I think again. um We've already talked about how, like you know, probably the back nine of a major is the highest pressure kind of situation because yeah. it is all on that individual player, yeah. you know, and and you get to watch that over unfold over hours. Yeah, um, in baseball too, it's like you know these like moments in playoff baseball are all on those couple individual players and you know it's it's
0: and my sympathy for golf just goes to how much more complicated the movements are and yeah i mean i've I've got a buddy who we're watching these tournaments he's like yeah i couldn't hit the ball i couldn't get it off the ground right now like like good golfers we've just never faced we've never faced that kind of pressure and we're going to talk more golf in the next segment We have jake nichols joining us one of the great analysts in the world of golf in the next half hour but that for now is the first quarter we still have three quarters to go come back and join us after the break welcome back to wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning at 8 to 10 Eastern a.m. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane and Audie. Eric is out. He will be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation. Give us a shout. one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. 942 7866 We will accept your phone calls. Give us a call, guys and girls. You can also reach out by email. Maddie Dats will take your email. Business radio at SiriusXM.com, business Radio at SiriusXM.com, or tweet at us on Twitter. Our handle up there is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. It's also a great way to stay in touch with the world of sports analytics. We follow all of our guests, and so it becomes an interesting little forum for seeing what's going on in that world. In the next half hour, our first guest for the day is a repeat guest. We've had this gentleman on the show a number of times, one of our favorite people to talk to about the world of golf. Jake Nichols is joining. Jake is the head of golf intelligence at 15th Club. 15th Club is one of the leaders in professional golf analytics. They're based out of London. We'll talk more about that organization. But Jake's been doing this for a little bit. A protege of Mark Brody, creator of Strokes Gained, and a friend of the program. Jake, welcome back.
4: Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Glad to have you, Jake. Where are you calling in from this morning? Scranton, Pennsylvania. Scranton, Pennsylvania. That's close. How far is it to Philadelphia from Scranton? Two hours, maybe.
4: About two hours. Maybe.
0: Yeah. Jake, we need you to have an excuse to be down here and come sit in the studio some Wednesday morning. What do we need to do to get you down to Philadelphia?
4: Uh, we'll have to make it happen. Do you, do Stretch limo is probably the answer. Yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> Jake, do you play golf? How much time do you spend on a course?
4: Uh, not too much, really. No. Um, much more, much more when I was younger, but but not so much anymore. So
0: we can't bribe you down with. We can't find a nice course around here and bribe you down.
4: Maybe a uh, nice course might work as well as a bad one.
0: Okay, good. Well, we'll we'll think about that. We'd love to have you. We'd love to have you in studio, Jake. Real quickly, give us a rundown on Fifteenth Club. This is an organization you've gone to work for in just whatever the last year or two, and we're familiar with them now. But how would you summarize what you guys do?
4: Uh, so I've been with Fifteenth Club since 2015, about when we started, and I would say. We spend our time across uh, a couple different areas. We work with uh, professional players, about three dozen at this point. Uh, everything from profiling their games to uh, helping them choose the optimal schedule to play, uh, the right courses to play to suit their game. Uh, we also do a lot of work with media organizations. Um, we work with the European Tour and Sky Sports over in the UK and some other other partners. Mm -hmm. And we also work with the European Tour or European Ryder Cup team Mm -hmm. um, to help the the captain and his uh, backroom staff Uh, make better decisions and make sure they have the information they
0: need. All right, that's a lot of fun work right there. You're working with individual golfers, you're working with media, and you're working with the Ryder Cup team. It may be the wrong Ryder Cup team. I mean, do people in the States know, do do your Scranton buddies know that you're consulting to the head of the European Ryder Cup team? Is that okay?
4: Yeah, it's it's an open secret at this point. Not so much three or four years ago, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Who is, uh, so it was Darren Clark. That's, I think, y'all got started with those guys. Who is it now?
4: Uh, Thomas Bjorn.
0: Ah, okay. So Thomas Bjorn's the head and, and, and your relationship carried over. We we probably can't well, tell us can you tell us anything about what you do with those guys? Like any specifics about consulting to Bjorn about building his team or or building pairings or or, cons- or like guiding his individual golfers. What does it involve?
4: So so really our role with with the Ryder Cup team is to make sure he him and his vice captains have The information they need to make better decisions. Um, They're bringing a lot of experience from past Ryder Cups and from their playing careers. They all have relationships with the players, and our role is to add the data side of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is everything that you just said profile which players are suitable to play in which formats, um, who is best to partner with each other. And coming up soon, you know who are the best players to pick as his wild card picks. So, because so eight qualify automatically, and and he makes four picks.
0: Okay, I think is that the same with the U.S.? is it is it eight plus captain? Captain is to choose four.
4: Uh, it is the same this year, and it varies depending on the, the captains'
0: preferences. Right, right. I think historically it was two, and now they're given a more discretion. It could be really important on the U.S. side of things. For example, the rankings right now, the next four. So you've got Big Eight. And then the next four; these are on the bubble guys: DeChambeau, a young guy out of, I believe, SMU. But then Phil, Tiger, and Xander Shoffley. I may be pronouncing Xander's wrong, name wrong. He was a he was a last round kind of guy at the British Open. So, but a young guy. He's a, he's a c- contemporary of, of Jordan Spieth. So the captain picks will be really interesting on the U.S. side. How's it shaping up on the European side?
4: Oh, it's it's. It's similar actually uh there's some veterans who right now would not be on the team Henrik Stenson Paul Casey who have a lot of experience yeah and there's um some young guys who are already on the team mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah I think it'll be it'll be similar if I had to guess uh it'll be similar on both sides That uh, some veterans will make it and then they'll go from there.
0: So as a reminder to folks, Ryder Cup is going to be played at the end of September. This is an every-other-year thing that happens, and then it rotates, whether it's in Europe or the U.S., and it's European golfers versus U.S. golfers. This year, it is in Europe. It's in Paris. Who knew they even played golf in Paris? They're playing at the Le Golf National. Le
2: Golf. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Does Does
0: Tiger Woods play for the Americans? Well, he's uh, kind of what uh, are you talking about? Why would he not play for the Americans? I don't know. Is he good enough? Well, no, you're, on, you know,
1: yeah, you do. I mean, he's kind of right now. It, he's a very intriguing case uh, because he's on sort of the bubble of whether or not they, he'll be picked. Or they not. can't not
0: take him, right? There's no. I way. think
1: they probably will, but who knows?
0: So we're talking um, to Jake Nichols. Jake is head of golf intelligence for 15th Club. One of the things, one of the things they do is consult to the Ryder Cup. They had this relationship with Darren Clark that turned into a nice little thing. But this seems like perfect. We would want, we would want as analysts the captains to have the best forecast possible. But it also strikes me as a domain where it would take a very humble and or sophisticated captain to want input from Jake Nichols on who's going to play best in this. Don't these guys think that they know better? Like I'm going to choose four guys out of say six or eight. They know these golfers. They know golfers who know them. They know guys who've played with them recently do, how, what have you found you know, their receptivity to you're saying, well, according to our model, you know this guy is the best match for that, that, that club or that course or whatever?
4: I'll give you a good example from last time. Um, Thomas Peters turned into a, one of the stars of the Ryder Cup. He played every match and, and had success. Um, in February or March of that year, we had identified him as a player who, who you really wanted to pay attention to. And really wanted to to pick, um, and it was all because of his his uh, suitability for the four balls format.
0: Tell us where, about tell us about four balls.
4: Yeah, uh, so four balls. There's two players on each team, and they both play their own ball through the hole, but they only count the best score. It makes an eagle, but someone else makes a double bogey on the team. Only the eagle matters, right? So it's it's really something about making birdies and, and scoring low, and that was something that Thomas Peters did better than. You know, he was maybe the fifth best at making birdies among Europeans. Whereas, you know, if you just looked at his performance, he was maybe 16th or 18th best.
0: So he's like a, it's a he's a high variance guy, and high variance means you know you're gonna you're gonna take some bad with the good. But in a, in a four ball format, you don't care about the bad because you got another golfer to lean on. Whenever one guy blows up, it doesn't matter because he's got a partner. But then you get all the good. You get those low high variance.
1: And and, and um, again, for somebody who doesn't necessarily know all the different formats that are in playing the Ryder Cup, is the four ball format kind of the most different from regular? I mean, because in regular golf, if you were sort of picking sort of over, you know, golf betters who pick performance over an entire tournament, you want to reward consistency. You don't want to have that high variance. So is this is four ball kind of the most, high, you know, kind of high rewarding of high variance play? Among all the kind of different sort of formats in the Ryder Cup?
4: Yeah, the the other format they play in, in team sessions is alternate shot, which player one takes the first shot, player two takes the second, and then they go on from there. Oh, that's so interesting. And that is, and that is you know, every player describes it as the most stressful round of golf they'll play all year. Uh, it's It's definitely divorced from the normal game because you can go several holes without hitting a certain shot. Uh, te- makes several holes without making a, a putt that matters.
0: So. Wow, Jake, wh- why? Can you t- tell us more about why they find that particularly stressful? I would I would think that it's because their partner is so dependent on what they do. So it's like this extra layer of pressure they don't usually experience, where they don't have to deal with the consequences if they. We were just talking about Tiger Woods' tee shot on whatever it was, sixteen yesterday or on Sunday. And the you know the, the pressure of that moment, but, but he had to deal with the consequences. It wasn't if he was playing an alternate shot, his partner would have to go dig the thing out of the rough and make the bad second shot.
4: Yeah, that's exactly the reason. That's exactly the reason. Almost every player says it's the most stressful.
0: Jake, in yeah. your analytics, are there particular kinds of golfers or particular kinds of games that are? Amenable to alternate shot and, can, and do it must ha- be
1: hard to sort of measure because you don't see that kind of yeah, performance and you don't have a big outside sample. of the Ryder Cup that often, right?
0: Right, and you don't have a big sample to work with. This you can't draw a lot of inference from what you've actually seen in Ryder Cup play. So how do you how do you factor that in, or do you? Uh,
4: we we look at at certain factors in terms of what produces a consistent golfer because that is really what you're looking for in in foursomes. And profile. There's a player on the European side, Francesco Molinari, who who just won the Open. Yeah, absolutely. And he is always profiled as as an extremely consistent player. Hmm. He gets it in play off the tee. He gets it on the green. You know, and he goes from there. And those and those are the type of players who who are most successful in, in foursomes. Is they're not putting their their partner under stress. Um, they're not playing themselves out of the hole. You know, if you did what Tiger did on 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 17 when he hit into the hazard. You know that's almost a loss at all in, in alternate shot. Well, this
0: raises yeah, the ob- to, it raises the yeah, obvious question. Now you got to-, to come back. Sorry, Jake. Now you've got to pick players that are on the one hand good high variance players for four ball, hmm. where it's you know the lowest score is all that matters, and yet you also need guys who are good for alternate shot, which requires consistency. So
1: no, th- no naive question. You not all you. Not all golfers that are in the Ryder Cup have to play all the formats, right? You can yes. kind of pick and choose where you place them. Is that correct?
4: Correct. You play you play eight of the 12 in each session.
1: So, yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, you're almost, you know, you're starting to now develop this sort of like extra dimension that you're not used to thinking about in golf, which is that certain play, like player styles, I guess, or, mm-hmm. or, or something like that, where you now are, are making a team that doesn't necessarily just have. I, I can see why you wouldn't want to just sort of even if you could easily measure it, wouldn't want to have the top ten players in America, you know, on this team necessarily. You want to actually have players
0: okay, almost Shane, specialists essentially. Shane, on the last day, they just go out and play match play. Which yeah. is straight stroke. Individual match play stroke. And so and that's that's the day where everybody, all twelve are on the course. And so it's actually what we're what we're doing here is unpacking kind of the beauty of the structure. Yeah. Because each of, each day calls for different kinds of golfer t- tell us jake is there a version to putting someone on the shelf for you know they play they play four half days essentially two days morning and afternoon morning and afternoon is there a version to to putting a guy on the shelf for those first couple of days is there some norm or some obligation or some sense that you ought to be playing a guy you don't want to just hold him out or no you're they're they're willing to like move him around or however their game is suited it doesn't matter if they don't play for a couple of days
4: historically um the european team has been very top heavy in terms of their best players you know the top six or eight players are much better than the rest of the team and that was a strategy that was occasionally employed where you know you would have the 12th man on the team or the 11th man on the team sit out the entire event until sunday yeah right but in 1999 uh, the Europeans did that. They got out to a big lead. They benched three players for the entire event, and each of those three players lost. Yeah. In singles right. on Sunday, and America came back to win. Got it. So since then, that's been normally the captains will play their 12th man at least for, for one match.
0: Got it. So, Jake, I have to say, my buddy Shane has a little twinkle in his eye about the Ryder Cup. I don't think he had before. I think you've stirred a real interest in him. I mean, the I'll be honest, I,
1: I've watched the Ryder Cup before, and I i mean, it's not like I wasn't cognizant of these different formats for it. I guess I probably have mostly just been watching on the Sunday when the match play format That's is right. kind of the most That's traditional. Right. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued. I, I guess I, I haven't. I didn't sort of think about or, or hadn't learned about. Um, this extra dimension of sort of matching up particular players, you know, based on how variable their yeah. their game is to these different, you know, types of uh, formats of play.
0: But, Jake, t- tell us – the 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 captains must have thought about these things at some level. So when you go to them two and a half years ago and say Peters looks like he might be an unusually good candidate for the Ryder Cup team because he's high variance, which means he's number one in making birdies or in top five in making birdies despite his mean score not being a top 12 kind of guy. When you go to them and say that to them, how do they respond? Do they say, oh, I hadn't thought about that? Or do they say, oh, I hadn't noticed him? Or, like, what, what What's the reaction? It's
4: It's something that, like you said the captains and the people involved in the event they they know intuitively what sort of players or what sort of strategies are successful in these events you know you're not telling the captain anything new if you say that birdies are the most important thing in four balls but it's the information it's it's giving them the information 6 months ahead of time yep so that they can bake that into the the way they're thinking and so they're not they're not showing up to select the wild cards a month ahead of time. Yep. And doing it off the back of an envelope. That's you know, interesting. This has been a you know, this has been a thought process.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, you know, let's let's that's a fun topic that we'll get to talk about for the next six weeks and maybe we'll have you back to talk about it as we get a little closer, Jake. But more recently we've just played the fourth major of the season and we saw Brooks Kapka take Yet another one. The guy, the guy seems to just kind of specialize in, in winning majors. What observations did you have from this tournament? Brooks was a big story, but obviously Tiger Woods was a big story.
4: Yeah, just on on Brooks, uh, how well he drives the ball and how he uses his driver as a weapon um, is is just unbelievable. What, really.
0: what, what does that mean? Use driver as a weapon.
4: Well, uh, if you looked at how how he hit driver versus uh, Tiger Woods, mm-hmm. there was a, a a huge gap in terms of how often he hit the club. Uh, he hit it about 80% of the time. The field average was in the high 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tiger was around 55%. Mm-hmm. So he has the confidence. He hits the same shot shape each time he hits a fade off the tee. Mm-hmm. And he has the to to get up. And and really, any time it's possible for him to hit driver based mm-hmm. on the characteristics of the hole, mm-hmm. uh, he's confident in his ability to do it. Mm-hmm. And because he hits it longer and about as straight as you know anyone in the world, that is just an enormous advantage for him.
0: Jake, we were talking in the first segment of the show. Adi was asking us how common it is for a, you know a world championship level golfer in a major tournament back nine to crank his tee shot into the woods the way Woods did <laughs> on fifteen or sixteen. I mean to. To duffers like us, it looked very common. But Adi, Adi's like, you know, how how often does this happen? You're talking about a Kapka being a guy who that is very rare for. But across all golfers, what professional, professional golfers? Pro, yeah, right. professional golfers. You know, high level professional golfers even. What would you say? How frequently that occurs? That they're going to miss not just a little bit. They're going to miss the fairway a little bit. They're going to really miss the fairway on you know in the final round of a of a major golf tournament.
4: I can say that. You know, maybe one in 20 tee shots just in general will that will happen okay and that's pretty high on a, you know based on a, a major you know maybe it'll be a little bit more than that mm-hmm. you know if you're affected by pressure
0: uh-huh. we're, we're talking we're, we're talking to jake nichols jake is head of intelligence for the 15th club one of the great golf analytics organizations out there and uh we've been talking Ryder cup but down to just a few minutes we want to get more of your take on Tiger Woods and 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 what his game looks like now, especially compared to what it used to look like, and do you do you believe that he's going to win a major championship? And have you been believing what What's your position on Tiger Woods?
4: Well, I'll start with his his game. Uh, it it looks very similar in a lot of ways to the most recent years where he's had a lot of success um, twenty twelve and twenty thirteen when he, he won nine tournaments. And even looking further back to to 2009,
0: how um, would you characterize that game?
4: Uh, very very reliant on hitting his irons and wedges, well. Okay. Um, very reliant on making putts and uh, good around the greens. Okay. And and not and not really playing that well off the tee. Right now we have him. You know he's not really gaining or losing anything. Um, because he. Plays a more conservative game off the tee. He's, I see. You know, the driver is he doesn't view it as much as a weapon. He's happy to hit a two iron down the middle of the fairway and, and play from there.
0: Okay, okay. And and I know you you do these forecasts of golfers. What what are they telling you about where his game is relative to the top golfers in the world?
4: Uh, right now, he's inside the top ten players in the world. If you know, if you, you ran him back out at the PGA Championship again this week we would have him as one of the you know seven or eight best players in the world. Wow. And so, most likely to win the tournament.
0: Okay. So these markets, when the markets are so big on him, you tend to think it's hype because obviously they're drawn to a name like Tiger Woods. And you're telling us, based on your analytics, which are as good as they get, he's actually a legit top ten golfer in the world right now. Yeah,
4: there is some uh, exuberance, over exuberance, really, in the markets, and there has been the entire time he's been coming back in terms of, you know, his price for the Masters was in the teens. Um, right. And really, it's only in the last maybe four or five tournaments where that he has really deserved to be at that level. Okay. Where, okay. He's, where he's producing the type of, you know, consistently.
0: It's got to be a little tough for us as analysts to get that right, given that he's coming back from injury, right? We got so We don't have models for, okay, after major back surgery, what is the what does the trajectory look like? He's only been swinging a golf club for like a year or something. Not even a year maybe since his back surgery.
4: Right. Yeah. You have to you know you have to take all the information you can get early in this comeback. You know, I was paying a lot of attention to where is he gaining his strokes? Yep. You know, is he just getting lucky making putts? Uh, you
0: know, that's
4: that's indicative, you know, we sort of know his typical level with the putter. And if he was, you know, gaining more than that with the putter, then you believe it a little bit less. I see. You now, then again, if he came back, which he did, and he was, you know, he had all of his club head speed back, he had all of his driving ability distance-wise back, then you believe that a bit more. I see. Interesting. You know, he's not faking it.
0: Yeah, so one of the things is to look deeper at the process measures like the, the swing speed. Um, that's interesting. Listen, Jake, we have to let you go, but fantastic to talk to you. Wish you the best with the work and hope to hear from you again before Ryder Cup in about six weeks
4: yeah thanks a lot guys I appreciate it
0: you bet that was Jake Nichols head of golf intelligence at 15th Club one of the top golf analytics organizations out there and a frequent guest of the program that is one half of Wharton Moneyball we still have to go please come back and join us after the break you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio welcome back Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning at 8 to 10 Eastern AM, that is. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen, my faculty colleague and buddy, as well as Audie Weiner, another faculty colleague and buddy. Glad you're with us. Give us a shout if you want to give us a question or a comment. It's one wharton That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or tweet at us, at WMoneyball. At WMoneyball is our handle. We follow all of our sports analytics guests. It's a great way to stay on top of that field. Just off the phone with one of those guys, Jake Nichols, golf analyst, one of the great golf analysts out there, doing all kinds of interesting work. At the top of the game, man, he's working with, like, real people doing real things.
1: Yeah, and I, I, he's got me hyped for the Ryder Cup. I think I'm going to be following <laughs> this a little bit more closely than yeah, I, I was, usually do. Yeah, yeah. I saw that
0: line get set, and you just kind of got reeled in. Yeah. I'm glad you got a little twinkle in your yeah. head there, Shane. It'll be fun.
1: It's the last uh, last weekend of September, is that right?
0: Yeah, 25 through 30, something mm-hmm. like that. And it's okay. in in Paris. It's gone back to European soil this year. Um, in the next half hour, we have another guest, Brandon Taubman. Brandon Talbman. He has been with the Astros since 2013. This is his first year running baseball operations and analytics. He assists the GM, but he also heads up the analytics department. Brandon, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me, Shane and Matt. Appreciate it.
0: Brandon, uh, you're calling in from Houston, I'm guessing, maybe?
3: I'm actually in Fresno, California right now, so oh it's pretty early, early in the a.m. out here, but we have our AAA affiliate and, uh, you know, Roster expansion in September is right around the corner, so it's an important time in the scouting season to to kind of get out and see the guys and figure out how you'll bolster the roster in the final month heading into the playoffs.
0: So, what is the what is the head of research and development team? What is the assistant the GM doing out in Fresno, even if it is roster expansion season? What what do your responsibilities include?
3: You know, I've been trying to figure that out for the past six years working for Jeff. <laughs> is that it kind right? of feels like? Uh, It's, it's whatever is the hot topic. And I kind of feel like at this point, I'm helping to assist him run the, the, you know, the day to day operation, but we're very fortunate that we have a lot of talented people that run the departments the day to day that, you know, I oversee, including analytics. So for example, we have a gentleman by the name of Mike Fass, who's the director of that team, who actually comes from, um, you know, out of industry, did semi conducting engineering, but became famous from all the analytics he was doing in the third-party space 10 years ago before, you know, teams were really in on it, and, and Billy Bean and the Oakland A's were kind of, you know, the full representation of analytics in in baseball. Um, and Mike was kind of the first to quantify catch framing as a real skill. And over the course of time, Jeff has acquired uh, – Jeff Luna, RGM has acquired a group in the front office that includes Mike and people like him. And I've had the good fortune of kind of – Riding Jeff's uh, coattails to the top, but it would all be impossible, and no matter what fancy title I have or responsibilities follow it, we're uh, we're lucky that we have a great group in Houston.
0: Brandon, let me ask you one detail: A guy like Mike Fast comes in from semiconductor engineering. Can you give us an example, a concrete example of an analytics project that he's done, or some kind of analysis that he's done, informed by his methods and training in engineering? Like, in what way is his work different, or what? How would we know that someone at that level of sophistication is doing the work if we looked at what he did?
3: Okay, that's a, that's a great question, and I think the answer to that is that some other industries have had experience first with dealing with large data sets, including the semiconductor interne- uh, industry, and now in baseball, the technologies that are really dominating, including the Statcast system, which you know baseball geeks out there are familiar with. That's what gives you plate location, pitch quality information, as well as batted ball information and does some field tracking and all that. Like those are massive data sets. Right, for sure. So the the catcher framing example that I gave for Mike Fass out of industry, um, all those same sorts of opportunities using data exist still. The technologies are just different. So he did it ten years ago with with, you know, trying to understand how a catcher can turn a rule book ball into a strike or how a catcher can make the mistake of turning a strike into a ball and learning that that's actually like a quantifiable skill that's predictable or projectable. And now he's just doing that with pitch tracking data and sensor data from, you know, swing sensors that we're using for our hitters and all that sort of stuff. So the, the opportunity is endless. And we actually have a little bit of the other problem now where we're kind of like drowning in data. I think that's common for teams and we're trying to figure out what things we actually want to focus on. because mm-hmm. there's. You know more, more opportunities than we can possibly seize, and uh, even with a growing analytics team, we're, we're resource constrained.
2: So, uh, so Brandon, this is Adi Weiner. I want to just you know circle back to this this Mike. So Mike published an article. Was it in Fangraphs back in two thousand eight or two thousand nine about mm-hmm. catcher framing? He wrote for uh, baseball perspective. Baseball perspective. So there wasn't. I mean, base. I remember. I think I remember reading some of these articles, and they just sort of tracked the using the early pitch FX or whatever they called it back then, exactly. and just sort of noticed that there were certain catchers who were more likely to get strikes around the corners, and and other catchers who weren't likely to get them, and and then it was. It was, uh, they asked coaches and people who understood the game much more deeply than a semiconductor expert and said, well, yeah, there are catchers who are really good at, at kind of framing the pitch around where the ball was placed. And you can actually see them adjusting their body, adjusting their glove in such a way that it looks a lot better. And it was, it was a really nice symbiosis between analytics and actual it was a confirmation of what people who played the game knew. And what it did is it took it to a level where you can actually evaluate it and then invest based on those decisions that no one really could understand. It turned it into something that people knew existed, but it was measurable and predictable in a way that it, it hadn't been. And that was the real turnaround. But this is a long time since then. And in fact, um, I've actually looked at this this the pitch framing data with one of my, well, now colleague, but former students, uh, Samir Deshpande, and we wrote a paper on this. And we've actually found that the the... The, there's been real changes in the way that the the uh, umpires react to catcher pitch framing from used to happen ten to twelve. They're years less ago. sensitive. to it They're now? much less sensitive to it, and they're they're actually aware that it goes on. They're they're they they change from year to year. Umpiring has gotten more efficient. Well, it's hard to know whether it's it
0: just it just changes. <laughs> I mean, that's really the way I've we've uh, we've we've characterized this. So I would say Mike Fast changed the game. Basically. Oh, yeah. It's like that's, they responded. It, was, it wasn't an equilibrium, and now they've responded.
2: So, I mean, are the Astros big into it now? I know this is something that the teams are, are all of mixed minds about. Are, are you willing to pay a lot of money for framing?
3: I think we view it as a skill set, like we do other skill sets. And we've made mistakes in the past where we've, you know, been attracted to catchers that have this skill set and perform really well at it, but kind of are lacking in other areas, and because of that, they're exploitable. But it's one of the things we definitely pay attention to and we value. And I agree with your point, but in, in some ways, um, so one, I just wanted to make this point that you, you are right. First from data comes some observation of a skill that maybe you always knew existed, but you couldn't quantify, or maybe you never even knew it existed at all. But once you have that insight, there's an amazing opportunity to not only evaluate players with it, but also help players get better. And I think that's one of the points that that you touched on. And that's the most exciting yeah. exciting opportunity of all. And this goes back to, I remember in 2012, late, late 2012, when I first got with the Astros and Jason Castro was using this information for the first time. And he got noticeably better at framing and i think he remains an above average framer but the the season that he really started to train with this information he got excellent at this and so it begs the question is this a is this a skill that you don't care about acquiring but you do care about training or or what and i think that's a big question for the astros and for other teams is in this new big data universe where we're trying to when we're discovering a lot of new things what sort of effort do you put into sharing that information with the players and investigating the opportunity to help them train proactively instead of just using it for evaluation purposes?
2: So, Brandon, how close do you and your team get to the player? Because there's been some high-profile um Interviews, statements made by players saying, "I don't want to talk to these MIT people who don't know crap about the game." Um, and in fact, that was Jason Worth recently has made more or less that statement. Are, you or do you always work with intermediaries? You don't go to a, a player and say, "We need to
3: work on your framing." <laughs> I saw right. this thing in
0: my regression last night. <laughs> right here, come look at my state output.
3: Yeah, J- Jason Worth. We're not going to be giving Jason Worth any any help at any point soon on his baseball game. But um, I would say there are guys like Jason Worth on every club but they're not in terms of of not wanting information their outlook on on information and all that there's always going to be a couple guys like that but we've built a culture here over the course of time where i think front office people like me are not necessarily are always viewed as like management people that are trying to use information against them to suppress their salary and this and that i think that we've bred a culture where the players even the difficult ones that don't want the information, you know, even on some level, they appreciate that we're here to help, that we're trying, that right. our interests are aligned. In an in
1: in in ideal world, they would almost kind of put, put you in with trainers, right? You'd be kind of like, you know, a trainer.
3: Or the conversation, right? So that, yeah. that actually is what's, what's happening. Um, certainly at the minor league level for a few years, we have front office folks that go work with development coaches that are kind of tech savvy manager types to support the manager. They're, they're bench coaches, if you will, but they're trained up in you know SQL and other skills that they're going to need to get data to players and all that. Uh, we, we have that culture. And then at the major league level, thank God for Jeff and AJ for partnering with people in the front office that are enthusiasts for bringing information to players in ways that will help them because we have a major league program where I get the opportunity, along with some other guys in our front office, to share this sort of information and we try to do it in a way that's not going to inundate the player and we cater the information according to kind of like the comprehension level of the player but yes we do have direct communication with the players and it's not just an analyst to a player or a coach to the player we look at it more like a a scrum or a group where we kind of all get together and talk as transparently as possible about what issues we see and it's awesome my, my favorite moments in the game are ones where i feel like i've actually had an impact in helping a player get better right it's like a thrill to identify a good help identify a good player bring in a player that the rest of the industry undervalued but it's an even sweeter feeling to watch a guy succeed on the field and feel like you actually help them i imagine it's, it's kind of what a what a coach feels like you know right so, right right obviously i don't have that number of touch points or involvement or influence. But, yeah, like Garrett Cole coming in and being able to talk with him and Brent Strom in spring training about opportunities we see, like those are the best moments in baseball and the ones I really
0: look forward to. We're talking to Brandon Taubman. Brandon is, in his first season, a senior director of baseball operations and analytics, but he's been with the Astros since 2013. You're, you're, you said that you... You try not to inundate the player, and you you try to tailor it to what they need. Can you give us one concrete example of taking analyses? And again, this is analyses coming out out of groups that include people that used to be in semiconductor or in... You know, There's probably some
1: fairly sophisticated I'm, modeling going on that has to somehow be exactly, computica- communicated to somebody who does not have training in sophisticated modeling. That's right.
0: I mean, Brandon, you yourself used to value derivatives at Ernst and Young, and so communicating in that environment is very different than communicating to a player in spring training. But can you just give us one concrete example of distilling that kind of sophisticated analysis into a form that can be used by the guys who have to use it?
3: Sure. So um, sticking with pitch data, the data that comes from the StatCast system, um, you can have lots of different observations from that data on a mass level, like looking at a season's worth of data, um, trying to forecast the player's performance based on that, or just looking at last night's game data and trying to see if the pitcher's velocity down is whatever. And we have some really sophisticated users of that information, like Cole and Verlander, who will review that data on their own. They know how to get it off the, you know, clubhouse PCs. When they have questions, we have uh, dedicated people in, in the clubhouse known as advanced scouts that help the players prepare against the upcoming competition. But mm-hmm. for the most part, they're, they're self-sufficient and they could go see like, okay, my fastball had less pop to it. Like I wasn't getting behind it as much or okay. My, you know, my changeup didn't have as much telling action. Let me, let me, you know, look at the break chart and then go throw a side session with Doug White, our bullpen coach, to try to get the field right. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, you know, it's almost like when the players retire, if they have interest in working in baseball, even though they will have made 150 million, like there might be opportunity for them to be technical analysts of some kind. But then you have some folks that, you know, didn't have the sort of educational opportunity that, you guys and I had growing up and no formal education have no chance, no computer literacy, no chance of, right. you know, using, using that information. I don't want to say exactly who, but in that case, it will always almost, if we have some insight, some concern, whatever, we'll go grab a coach and coach will say like, okay, let me go discuss this with the player and I'll get back to you. And the, and the coach will put it in layman's terms and if they have a question. We'll try to do it, do mm-hmm. it that way. You know, mm-hmm. so not everyone, the, the raw data that's pouring in, is really overwhelming, but we put a lot of focus on building intuitive data visualizations on top of that data, Mm -hmm. and that gets us to a point where most players can consume it, but when they can't, we have coaches that kind of act as the liaison.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you're building a bit of a track record for taking free agents up a level when they get to you, so signed Garrett Cole as a free agent, now he's a Cy Young candidate. Last year, of course, mid-season, late season, take that Verlander trade, and then Charlie Morton as well. Charlie Morton as well. Can you give us – I mean, can, did these guys know coming in that y'all were going to have like a little something extra for them to, to take their game up? Or how is it that you're taking someone like Ver, Verlander who – It's
1: long-term. If you can kind of get this reputation, obviously, it's going to make ac- free agent acquisitions yeah, yeah, even it, easier. Yeah,
0: right. It's a good recruiting pitch.
3: It, what? it is, and it's amazing because in, in the early years, we would sometimes offer top dollar for a player and still not get him and we just had an awful reputation because the team had been bad for a really long time and jeff came in and he was trying to turn over a new leaf and make us a data-driven organization and it was hard to get free agents to want to come here and be part of the rebuild we did get some like scott feldman and jed lowry back in the day but yeah i mean the fact that we have a philosophy with player development that goes all the way up to the major league level where it's all about exploiting information ahead of the competition figuring out how to take information and, and package it for players so that they could be proactive with their own development i mean that is our mantra we do that it's real and over the course of time yeah it's become a nice selling point now where you know we have players that want to come to us to get things figured out and it's a good problem to have but we are uh, a really good team and it's you know our, our, I guess our, our internal replacement level, so to speak, is, is really high, so it's hard to, you know, we're focused on finding good players. We're, I think, past the point of wanting to find players that have a lot of development opportunity and fix them, but um, right. every player has something to work on all the time, and even if we're noticing small differences in arm slot or pitch quality, we're going to share it with the players and coaches and try to achieve a level of, like, almost radical transparency in the way we handle information.
2: So so Brandon this is uh the big the big uh, names on everyone's minds are of course Morton and Verlander and how do they fit into your sort of description of what you do with with acquiring top talent who are yep. could still be much better I mean Verlander was seemed to be past his his prime and Morton I don't think anyone thought that much of him he came to the Astros both of them go you know are sort of off the charts um did you see that ahead of time or are we just back back testing backfitting this
3: So with more a combination I think with Morton that was a success in the application of all of our fancy information and all that, but it was more of a like player evaluation find. We saw that his velocity was up quite a bit in a short stint following a, a hip injury with Philly. He's a player that, when healthy, always performed really well, but there are some injury risks. There and we saw him come back from injury and pitch at a career best level, and he was kind of available at a bargain, Mm -hmm. uh, bargain price. When he came in, we shared things with him like we do with everybody, and he's taken to them. But I do attribute the success of Charlie Morton to his successful comeback, his hard work, and the fact that our player evaluation function picked up on that.
2: So, are you saying almost like just to interrupt here? This is a very you you recognize that the high speed. Everyone was, had the ability to look at that too, but you jumped on it faster. You you realized, you know what? I think this is legitimate, and everyone else might have just been looking at it, going, eh, "We don't know." And, and you 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 were confident that this was was for real.
3: Yes, exactly. And I wouldn't say like like confident. We, we believe that you know we live in a probabilistic world, and we believe in looking at players like uh, you know. It's, not in a cold-hearted way, but they're their assets. And because of their underlying skill changes and they approach free agency, their value is always changing or depreciating over time, you could choose to, to kind of look at it that way. And with any investment you make in the financial markets, you're going to face some sort of risk or p- payoff profile. I think it was the same for Morden, where we saw a lot of upside and the guy that could start that – you know, he had a, a really bold projection based on his past performance because, like I said, any time he's been healthy, he's pitched well. And we saw injury risk, and we said, okay, let's take the injury risk. It's worth it because this guy performed well when he was at 91, and now he's at 96. And so mm-hmm. let's let's make the move. And then when he got here, you know, we shared some stuff about pitch location and usage and all that and made sure that, uh, you know, Brian McCann and, and those guys were kind of in sync with the plan. It's all worked out well, but... The main thing that happened is he started to throw way, way harder, and we picked up on that. Um, that's not something we we developed, although I think when we learn how to give guys five miles per hour extra, we'll be in pretty good shape. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's, um, a,
1: that's that's a skill that we will we'll definitely serve you well.
0: We're talking to Brandon Tabman. Brandon is in his first season as Senior Director of Baseball Operations and Analytics for the Houston Astros. He's been with the club since 2013. And the way you're talking about this, Brandon, it sounds like, the traditional analytics group has blended into a player development group or at least quite cooperative with the player development folks, even into some coaching roles mm-hmm. in, or at least cooperative. I mean, there's an integration there in the way you're talking about identifying and developing players that feels next level compared to what I see and hear from other organizations.
3: Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And uh, I agree with it. I mean, in, in 2013 when I started, I think the debate we were having in the front office and the debate that much of the industry was having was what was analytics role in like pro scouting and player evaluation. Mm-hmm. And the view at that time was, okay, you need your pro scouting function and they will give you their perspective of how, you know, skilled athletic the player is based on the, the now, right? Like they're judging with their eyes real time. They're saying the player has skills. Right. And the analytics perspective was completely different. It didn't care what the skills were right now. They looked at you know three years of past performance records to try to predict the future. And that's the kind of the way that we, we operate in the early going, but we've moved very quickly towards this integrated model. I like to think of it as a kind of like hub-and-spoke model that has research and development or, or analytics, if you want to call it that, sitting in the middle, and every other department is dependent on it mm. uh, for for consuming information and Jeff has hired the appropriate people yeah. and set the culture such that it's a pull model. It's not like analytics is right. pushing this down everyone's throat. We have you know our head of international and domestic amateur scouting Mike Elias that's asking for information all the time from us, you know and and the same across all of our departments so, what it, you're sensing from our conversation
0: is definitely true. Yeah, it really is dependent on the hires. Those end users, are, they're, they're not quite even the guys in the field, but like the guys in player development, the guys on the bench, the coaches, the, the guys in uniform essentially need to want this stuff. You have to hire the right guys into those positions, or it doesn't matter how good your R&D group is there in the middle. Listen, we don't want to get away without hearing some of your thoughts on this year's team. I mean, you guys are you know performing at a very high level, but... You're kind of overshadowed by what's going on in the AL East in some sense. One question that comes to mind is that you seem to have so far navigated some of the challenges that come from winning world championships. I mean, the Cubs, you know, I think they would even admit to having a hard time getting motivated in the first half of the season. The locker room was different, and they kind of struggled, and they hit their pace late in the year after winning the championship. But teams do this. How, wh- what's going on with you all this season, and what do you think's – been done to avoid the typical kind of you know traps that follow a, a championship
3: Oh, well, i i literally just knocked on wood in my crappy fresno hotel room, <laughs> room just now
4: uh, so you are in Sorry. fresno Sorry. Sorry. Oh, yeah, I mean, you guys
1: have <laughs> definitely had some uh, bad luck with injuries in the last you know last few months so that's obviously been something that you've
3: had to deal with we've hit a little bump in in the road and we're still in first place but barely so when's Oakland's right on our heel, and they're playing really good baseball. We feel really good about our team. Um, We have had injuries, but fortunately, all of Altuve, Springer, um, Lance, Devo, these are all guys that are suffering short-term issues and should be back soon. So we feel good about having a complete team heading into the playoffs Mm -hmm. bearing any unforeseen issues. But um, what we can't control for, obviously, is that there's a – ton of luck in this game and in other sports analysts can predict with more confidence you know game outcome or player production but we're in a sport where uh you know round ball round bat um we're lucky that we have a whole lot of discrete sort of uh outcomes to measure that make my job and my people's job easier but in terms of like whether the best team always wins, um, it's it's the most random in, in baseball of all sports. So that makes me nervous. And uh, we got to just focus on having the right process and doing the right things and hope the results follow. We did last year, but like you said, it's a different uh, market reality this year with Austin playing so well and Oakland right on our heels. So we'll have to see what happens from here.
0: Brandon, that was such an analytics-y response to what I thought was kind of a organizational culture motivational leadership kind of softball question i i, I especially you, you've talked a lot about culture but you've talked you've emphasized the culture that jeff has helped build integrating analytics with an r&d with with more traditional baseball guys i'm i'm curious i mean how did you how did you guys keep the clubhouse straight how did you guys keep people motivated what do you what do you think if anything The organization has done differently than other teams who have struggled on the other end of a championship. We get the chance thing. We understand that completely. But do you think there's anything different about this club or the way they're run that is helping them not fall into the post-championship trap?
3: It's a couple of things. One, on the player level, we have a ridiculously good group of guys that are self-motivated. Like Bregman is a complete animal. On my off day last week at 8 p.m., I was leaving and he was first coming in to take reps by himself. So we have a lot of that. And I know. You know it may sound made up but but it's it's real like he's he's incredible and so are many of his teammates and mm-hmm. so that's we have that on the foundational level yep. the other thing is that jeff and aj has set the tone since the first day of spring training in saying that the goal here was never just to win one world series it was to be perennial contenders for the world series and mm-hmm. that's always kind of been the the bar that we've we've set that we've kept in mind um, and then the third thing, which doesn't really get talked about very much, is the health management or fatigue management
0: mm, right.
3: aspect. And, you know, it's all anecdotal, but you could argue that teams that have won World Series and then come back and, you know, not really met prior season's, you know, performance levels, uh, that it's it's been, I guess what I'm saying is, often it's because teams wear down, because in the previous year they've gone the distance and, Um, That has a real toll. And we're lucky that we both had the depth and a really good um, high performance and athletic training staff that I think has done a really good job keeping our players healthy.
0: Okay. So we only have a few minutes, but you just touched on something that we always love to get a little detail on when we have the opportunity, and that is the sports science you just referred to as high performance and training. What is an example of something you guys are doing, because I'm sure that it's pretty far out there on the frontier, to make sure your your athletes are at peak performance, that they're getting enough rest, that they're not having, you know, you can do whatever you can to identify and, and get in the way of injuries before they happen. What, is there one thing that y'all are doing that you that you can give us an example of or, or a new thing that you've added?
3: You know, on, on some of the cutting edge things we're trying to do, I obviously can't speak freely about them, but I'll say more generally that in the wearable space, mm-hmm. there's wearable technologies. There's a lot to be learned and we've talked about that at the performance level we talked about sensor technology you know catcher framing data everything that comes from Statcast and so on and on the high performance or you know strength and conditioning side there's a whole world of wearables that you know people that train in the olympics have been using for for a decade by now and they're kind of first making their way in and what i love about that is finally giving players an objective feedback loop and objective training targets on the, the high performance side. So um, that's all changing very quickly, but unfortunately, I can't get into the, the specifics of our, our work there. Yeah,
0: I hear you. Um, one general issue, though, is like player privacy and who owns the information. Yeah, we know this is definitely. going to be a big deal in, in, in a number of sports. And the tension usually is okay, we, it's in the player's best interest. You know, we want those guys to not get hurt, we want them to be at their best on the field. And they can believe that. But there's also the risk that the club will use it against them in some sense. That they'll, you know, they'll know when a guy's, you know, not performing, and they'll know it at a different level of with a different level of certainty than they have in the past. Can you tell us anything about how you're navigating that? That's a, this is a real issue. I'm sympathetic to both sides because it seems a waste to not use the information. Right? We're throwing away really good information at the same time. We, it, it's not really fair to put players um, under that kind of, um, you know, leverage. I suppose.
3: We're we're not handling the problem well, so I have to reject your leading your leading question. It's a big issue for us and we okay. haven't quite okay. figured it out. When you say us, do you passed. mean
0: the Astros or do you mean MLB?
3: Both, I think. Okay. So the the Players Association takes the stance that not officially. My impression is that they take the stance that given the choice, players should not use wearables if they don't need to. Wow. Wow. Some of the technologies like the um Some camera-based technologies and the Statcast system are are non-invasive, so they exist, but when it comes to wearables, there's so much rich data that comes from accelerometers and gyros, and uh, there are other technologies like that we could be using for fatigue monitoring and so on that we don't for this issue, and we haven't really solved it, Um, and think about you know, in any sort of labor management yeah. uh, context, like if your boss just asks you to submit to a physical, that would give him a much greater understanding of your health and whether you might need medical insurance in the future. You know, it's a slippery slope, um, and I think it's I think it's a, a question or issue that a lot of industries are facing, but baseball sure. has not quite figured it out. There's attention there where clubs want this information very very badly and the PA tells them every year frequently don't trust the clubs don't do this yeah. and sometimes because clubs do abuse the information but yeah. we're trying to build a reputation where where we we look at it differently and any information we have we give back to the players but it's a constant war to you know you think you have the trust of a player and they use the information and you love that and then all of a sudden they've, they've stopped and you try to understand why and you find out it's because oh the PA just came and they explained to the players that they shouldn't be using these technologies and so now the player's scared. And the players association is offering that advice because it's probably good advice in right. totality based on their experiences. It's not like they're they're leading their their players astray here, but I think for the Astros specifically, we we are building our entire strategy around this so it's especially important that we figure it out and yeah. that we, we find a way to you know keep players trust but there's no policy or incentive that I think deals with that it's more like a cultural issue that you have to handle over time.
0: Okay I appreciate the candor on that it's a big issue you're right not just with the Astros but not just with baseball not just with sports but across organizations it's a big one that's going to have to be navigated in, in the next couple of years. Brandon we'll let you go we really appreciate you taking the time especially from Fresno California this morning we wish you the best with your work
3: Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. You
0: bet. That was Brandon Talbman. Brandon is with the Houston Astros. He's in his first season as Senior Director of Baseball Operations and Analytics. He's been there um, helping the general manager for a number of years now, Brandon Talbman. That is three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m., Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner. Eric is out and about. He'll be back. Daniel Bruno on the board, on the soundboard engineer. Daniel Bruno bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour. We've got one half hour left. Open lines, open topics. You guys can give us a ring if you want to. Give us a shout. Number is one wharton That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or... Hit us on Twitter. Our handle up there for this show is at W Moneyball. At W Moneyball, we follow all of our guests. We take your over-under suggestions. We're up for anything you can throw at us up there. Just off the phone with Brandon Taubman, guys, that was a terrific conversation with this guy who's running baseball operations analytics for the Astros. He's kind of a right-hand man to Jeff Luno, the general manager down there. He was forthcoming with us about good stuff and bad stuff. I thought it was great.
1: Yeah, no. Uh, I, I was just saying, it's, it's uh, the Astros. Every, every person we've talked to from the Astros organization has been so they—they well, they don't back away. Professional from... dynamic. Uh, yeah, it's, it's
0: pretty amazing. So. Talman was into derivative valuations before they got him. Mike Fast was a semiconductor engineer. Sig Maidal was famously working for NASA. I mean, yeah. This is the talent. Jeff Luno an M grad of the University of Pennsylvania. M T yeah. being the Joint Business School Engineering yeah. Program here, probably the top program on campus. So they they've so. they've got some things going on, man.
1: Go go. I mean, I mean, seems like the, the the career path is go into some serious science and then uh, move from there into uh, baseball.
0: Yeah. If if, you, if and you, but how many? It's GMs? the it's
1: the ultimate catch for all the scientists of the of America. <laughs> That's
0: right. Well, this last issue that we were talking about, this privacy issue is a really big one for mm-hmm. sports teams but also bigger like this as more and more information is available, who controls the information and and there's this real tension between essentially assessment for hiring and promotion purposes versus assessment for development purposes. And you want the employee or the player to have access to all this information so that they can develop better, but If management also has access to and I I mean, I don't
1: don't see it coming to any kind of resolution or or any kind of standard because it's going to be chaos. I mean, you're going to have technologies like the wearables that even if the player association says you can't use those, then, you know, the teams will find some video way of capturing the same thing that, you know, is not – Under the player's option, and
2: yeah. uh, Well, it's interesting how he he pointed it to accelerometers and things that you would wear that tell you your velocity or things related to motion. But I think the biggest technology is in uh, training having to do with rest and readiness to to work out. I'm not sure that matters so much in baseball. Um, How intensive is it? um, No,
1: the, the the medical physiology side, the genetic side. Of oh this, right? Well, I, mean, I mean, now that we open up this, but Pandora's at this point, box, but at
2: this point, you know, we're, we're talking about <laughs> professionals, but but the, what we're looking at with the with the with the heart rate stuff, that's that's the where the, and the rest and your ability to, to work out mm-hmm. hard, and and maybe the right thing to do is yeah. maybe have a have your own agent who kind of works with you. A, a medical personnel or a trainer who's who really works for you as as an intermediary. Yeah, that's so you can as, use at it
0: the, at the player level that would work. But and and the,
1: but then do they have to
2: honestly disclose to the team? No no, 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 no. The basically the team pays for or supplements or helps you have your own personal, you know, trainer who works for you. And that, these and, and that trainer is beholden to you or the
1: team? You.
0: No, no, this is they're they're helping the, you to work is, well. I no, don't I,
1: see I, this really.
0: I but I think it's in the team's best interest cuz if they can't if they can't guarantee protection Mm-hmm. Right, the information is going to go away. So there's this efficiency loss in yeah, the system Yeah, but I mean, teams whole.
1: are going to cheat on this. Okay. They are. I mean, you've so got some player every, that's every, about to become a free agent, yeah. and maybe you don't actually like disclose.
0: So this is the thing. Teams have to figure out a way yeah. to bind themselves. Yeah. They have to figure out way to bind themselves, and every team won't if do this. If there can
1: be some kind of transparency standard that's enforced at some higher level. You
0: need opacity then, standards is yeah. what you need. You well, need to bind transpa- yourself to yeah, opacity. That's right. Tran- yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> I guess transparency about the data collection, pro- yeah. the transparency about the processes by which you are collecting and analyzing that data. Opacity about the data yeah. itself.
0: It's almost like they need to put the data, these particular data. In the hands of someone that they don't have access to, mm-hmm. like a trainer that is like a player ombudsman or something like that. They they they, they ha- the player has access to it, and the organization doesn't have access yeah. to it. Something like that. Um, anyway, that's happening. It's not just baseball. It's happening across sports, and it's going to be a, it's going to be a big challenge. Speaking of other sports, is there any other major sport we haven't talked about?
1: Oh boy, I yeah. Wonder. I mean, there's, I feel like there's some stuff starting up, getting getting kind of so going. Something,
0: tell me something interesting about football, Shane. Oh, I mean, uh, does the preseason, do you watch any of these games? No, yeah,
1: no, I do. I do watch the games. I mean, I try not to buy too much into it. I mean, I, I, I think you can. You know, I mean, if, if somebody comes out, like a particular quarterback comes out and throws, like, you know, their first four passes are interceptions. They look terrible. I mean, I, there's signal to preseason. There's not signal at the team level. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually kind of like preseason because, you know, clearly coaches – in part, are using it to evaluate players and try and make decisions for for you know kind of like their team in the upcoming season. But they're also experimenting; they're trying out kind of plays, and like, the variance in preseason games is huge because stuff just yeah. doesn't work, you know. <laughs> but and it's I mean, also
0: this: it's their right to feed us. They're right to feed us preseason because yeah. we've been deprived of football so long that even preseason kind of tastes good. Right. And I love these moments where you walk into a bar or a restaurant and it's middle of August and you haven't really thought about football in a yeah. few days and there's football on the TV. Oh, I and know. you're like, what? It's So <laughs> exciting. No,
1: I, I, I love it. And what do you think of this? Uh, there's this kind of story coming out of uh, Cleveland. Uh, this receiver, Galloway, had kind of upset the coaching staff in some way. And they apparently penalized him by making him play. More of the yeah, preseason yeah. game than they. You know,
0: I actually. Isn't
1: bo- that. We, it's hard to think of, you know, making somebody or, or well, giving people. It tells you, what you need yeah, to Yeah, I mean, to football. a certain extent, I guess that is, you know, the preseason and a microcosm and how coaches actually view it. That yeah, like it would be a punishment I mean, to be playing there in these games.
0: Some of the knee-jerk reactions were, "Oh, this guy is just making excuses." No, yeah. actually, I believe it. They and they yeah. and you know the guys need spells, especially receivers. They need spells. You can't just run as much as receivers have to run every play. You need to yeah. come out, and they weren't <laughs> taking him out. But you know that guy, the Browns. I mean, you know you, how many character question marks can you take onto the team before you have trouble? So now mm-hmm. they're, they're they're everyone's speculating that they'll take Des Bryant, right? Um, Callaway was a character question mark coming out of college on most teams' draft boards. And he's already, you know, we're like 15 minutes into his professional career, and he's in the headlines yeah. for trouble. So, Brown- Clearly
1: teams do differ in how much weight they put on Absolutely. that particular Absolutely. character variable. Mm-hmm. The Bengals might actually put a different
0: sign on it so that they actually are selecting <laughs> for it. Historically, Pac-Man Jones, is he still in the league?
1: He, 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 uh, he's not on the Bengals anymore, shockingly.
0: Well, the, for a while, the, the Pats had the philosophy of we're so well run
1: yeah.
0: that we can, we can take a risk other organizations can't risk, take, right. because we'll keep the guy on the straight and narrow. And I think they might have actually been right about that. Well, they didn't keep all their guys they on the straight and narrow. They didn't keep all arrow, the guys. They, <laughs> as it turns out. That was but, clearly one of their philosophies, though. Yeah. They could afford it better mm-hmm. than other clubs because they were so well run. Maybe they were overconfident and they were yeah. able to pull that off. Um, what else Shane we're gonna we're gonna this, you know this coming weekend is the last weekend until like February that's how good it is the last weekend until February without football that matters yeah because even though college doesn't officially start until Labor Day weekend they'll play a few games a few real games weekend after this one. so this is the last time we don't have a single game to look at for like six months.
3: oh boy.
1: <laughs> no, and it's, and it's oh, you know, try. It's, Audie,
0: it's, Come on, it's man. a t- long team, season, your season. Your team season. has the number three pick in the draft. You've got a new quarterback. There's nothing. There's actually to look at, but it's the Jets.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. going to be a disaster. No, I mean, they they have. Uh, <laughs> We're used to. It. I mean, they they. I mean, they they're in solid shape for that second place. The AFC
2: <laughs> <laughs> We don't have an under uh, over under on our list for the Jets. Maybe I'll make one up, but I have no benchmark to go on. A proper over under has to kind of have some information. It puts right. sets the sets the, the line at, at a reasonable. Is there anything target. that
1: you're sort of excited for for this upcoming season? Any kind of
2: well, I, actually, in some level, I'm, I'm very excited because I, I know so much more about football than I did mm-hmm. you know when we first started this this podcast, this yeah. show, this uh, radio show four years ago. Um, I mean, I knew nothing. This year, actually, I know the, the young rookie quarterbacks. The, the Eagles are, are the champions. And, and I was going to say, I mean, them, if if the uh,
1: Jets, if it's really about, if really kind of a little bit of your negativity towards football is fueled by no, the Jets, which I, I would completely understand... We'll let you move
2: to the Eagles at <laughs> no, this I- juncture. No, I'm actually – the Eagles are I'm, – I'm, I'm fully behind the Eagles. 20 okay. years in
0: Philadelphia makes me – All right, all right.
1: Me, okay. Well, I mean, then you've got to be excited. But it's, it's it's also, really, you can but,
0: also pull against people. I mean, that's part of the fun of sports is you not only have your teams, but you have your teams that you love to hate or for right. whatever reason. So, or for players. example, here's a great story that I'm really intrigued about in the NFL this year. How's John Gruden going to do with Oakland?
2: Oh, my. Yeah, I'm intrigued. So, so tell me why I should.
0: I don't know anything about Honestly, this. What is this?
1: Well, so John Gruden, he's out of football for 10 years. And he, I mean, he did win a Super Bowl with uh, Tampa Bay back in the day. I mean, he has had on field success. Um, and then he's a, a broadcaster for a decade, essentially. And now he's coming back in. Oakland gave him a ridiculous contract to coach for them, a 10 year contract, however many. Like I think it was a 10 year
0: No, Notably, he was the foot, Monday Night Footballer, or was it Sunday yeah, Night Football? It was, uh, Monday Night Monday Football. Monday Night Football analyst. So yeah. He was this extremely high profile. Post coach right. celebrity, okay, big personality, extremely confident guy. The
1: and, opposite of what you would regard as an analytics kind of person. Yeah, he, for, I mean, he is like well, that's football. No, uh, well, no, more, no, no,
2: even no, within no. football, within this football, guy even, is even, definitely even within, he's extreme. So, where are the Oakland Raiders before they hired him? I mean, what what kind of team were they? Uh, are they expecting a, a decent. A, so they won
0: six last year. Yeah, so, they, uh, so
1: a couple seasons ago, they looked like they were going to actually. I mean. A couple seasons ago, they looked like they actually might make a, run, a relatively deep run in the playoffs. And Derek their, their Carr then broke his leg and Christmas Eve or something like that. And a dis- a last dis- year was disappointing.
2: So the regression forecast would be seven wins maybe. And you're going to bump him up to eight or something Be with a coach? Is that something – am I on the right Well, top? I mean, honestly, I would it. bump
1: him down several this is slots. This it. Yeah, it's so uh, intriguing because I think – I hope he is going to be a huge failure. I think
0: he might spectacularly fail i think it's going to be glorious yeah big i don't want him to
1: spectacularly fail because i don't want him to go back to the broadcast booth too
0: quickly Uh, i I,
1: i'm kind of i'm going to enjoy but
0: if he fails really big they won't take him back i mean they won't you think they would
1: yeah they'll i mean they
0: would have some other excuse uh,
1: you say what you want about any he has apparently a popularity as a broadcaster i don't really get it but people seem to like listening to that guy So I'm kind of hoping for like maybe ten straight seasons of like six wins a season or five wins a season. No
0: way that happens. This guy goes out, so we get a a decade break from him in
1: the broadcast booth. But his teams never contend.
0: Here's a question: Speaking of decades, how do coaches who've been out of the NFL for at least ten years do?
1: I doubt it. I doubt they do well. The game changes. Is that something that there's enough?
2: Data on to make any
0: there, decent – There's not I mean, reality. we're not going to get
2: any kind of statistical significance. No, but, but there, are, there, there are There are. It, it's just so residents. small sample size that it it's worthless. will 4
0: five? I'll give five? you eight modern-day names that you've heard of, that you should have heard of anyway, that um, – that's not a big enough sample, but the data are strongly negative. So Pardee, Jack Pardee, Ted Marchabroda, Pete Carroll, Dick Vermeule, Gibbs, Gibbs. Gibbs, Joe Gibbs, Joe yeah. Gibbs with the Redskins originally, Chan Gailey, and Art Shell. That's the list of guys. There's Paul Silas in there, but we're not going to yeah. count back in the day. So those guys all had basically above average win percentages party was right about uh, 500. And so 10 years later they get pulled in, or 15 in the case of Vermeels, they get pulled back. And how do they do? 500? No, they all regress. They all go down. They, even Carroll, no, par, yeah, even Carroll. So, They're, oh,
2: lower than five hundred. Yeah, so that's they, the average.
0: They, they, the average, reg, the average decline in win percentage. I'm just eyeballing oh, no, this not, thing. We
2: expect that, but oh, no, oh, it's the overall.
0: No, it's like it's like it's like two hundred points or something. I mean, this is like a big decline. The only exceptions were Jack Pardee and Ted Marchibroda, who were essentially. 500 before a little bit, 500, and just and they maintain the same. So it's not a huge sample. I'm not saying it's a huge sample. But we have these examples. It's just weird. It's a little weird yeah. to hire a guy who's been out of the league for 10 years. Yeah, he was successful back in the day. But doesn't
2: that predict – I mean it- – that the team is sort of particularly bad that they they go and they grab this. It's run badly and They've that bad ownership. That's that yeah. suggests that a, you're dealing with a bad organization, bad team, yeah. and therefore big drop. And yeah, not but I mean, the why would that?
1: But, but if the coach, when the coach yeah. left, they probably weren't doing very well too. So I mean, you've got that drop on the other side. Like you're trying to that's sort right. of say that there's yeah, some yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. selection bias in terms of coaches coming into bad teams, but they probably left bad teams too.
0: Well, Indeed,
2: because that's why you hire new coaches. Yes. <laughs> right. So the, the,
0: that, the team that they are arriving in, regression to the means, says they're going to do better because the guy just left. Yeah. And so they were bad. But I like Gotti's point that 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 signing a guy, hiring a coach that's been out for 10 years is a bad and is like a negative indicator on quality of management or ownership. Yeah. And that's going to have other consequences. To work against yeah. each other, the two. Yeah. yeah it's a, it's interesting. Nice, well,
2: that does lead us to some interesting forecasts coming up.
0: So speaking of forecasts, let's take the turn to the final stretch. It's Warden Moneyballs Over Under. All right, Audi Weiner. I'm going to lead. I'm going to bring us in. In fact, I want to bring us in just
2: to the topic we were talking about. So, uh, .499, the coaching record percentage for John Gruden. Oh, really? Okay. Over
1: I, uh, Are you kidding uh, well, me? But this is not his career. This is just no, just this Oakland. season. Just this season. This season? Just this oh, season. Under, I'm, under, under, under. It's
0: my favorite bet of the season. I'm, I'm short this guy, and I'll enjoy every minute of well, it. Well, I'm
2: going yeah. to pile on to under. Okay. okay. There we go. All All right. Right. That was too quick. Um, here's another football. So last week, I understand you guys talked about college football and the question becomes: how far down the rankings do you have to go to get 50 percent of the probability of winning the football championship. This is a question we ask in lots of sports.
1: Golf is particularly, Golf is particularly far yeah.
2: down. And I'm curious to know about baseball. We don't have that on our list for this week, but maybe for next week. So how many of the top teams do you have to go down to before you get uh, you'll take the top versus the field in winning the Super Bowl? Over under 6.5. So the top so, no, wait, six this, teams this are... Is, wait, we're talking oh NFL? we talking In college. NFL, we're talking about NFL. Oh, so NFL. Top teams are, surprisingly, yeah. Patriots, yeah. Eagles, Vikings, Steelers, Packers, leaving the Jets in the field among the rest of the team. So where would you go? Would you take the th- those top six or would you go with the field... So and the top, so we, I, I get the, the over under is the six that's six, right
0: six and a half you said
2: it's six and a half so you if you if if any of if the Super Bowl comes from either the Patriots the Eagles the Rams the Vikings the Steelers and the Packers you win otherwise I'll take you I'll lose. take those teams I'll take those teams and I
0: feel like I'm just a schmo but absolutely I'm taking those teams I don't have the numbers in front of me I, I don't
2: have them either but I'm going to go with the field you're going really? the field? I'm going okay. with the field I like the field because there's randomness. No, I mean I get it. I get it. Get, I, get but it. How, I just but I think much? I think there's there's a bit. Well, you know what? It's a good bet. I think it's a good call with under yeah, over okay. under. I think All if right. it, we if we if we went to four, it would be obvious the field. Uh, maybe not to you. So, uh,
0: so Adi, you've given us a statistical answer. If you were on a show and needed to have good rhetoric, you would also need to come up with an example of a team that's outside of those top six yeah. that you think especially likely to sneak in.
2: Well, the problem is, is that the last few years we have a lot of uh, well. Other than the Patriots, where the, let's take them off the table, where the, I think the Eagles were not in the top six 40 to, start. to one,
0: Forty to one last Lester. year. And pre-season. so, so go, back, yep. go
2: back five years. You guys are good at this. Extract the Patriots, but where, where are the other teams that have won?
0: I'm horrible at this.
1: I oh, I, I mean, okay. So, I no, I mean, other than the Patriots, we had the Seahawks winning. We had the Broncos winning. They were not top winning. six. Broncos? The Seahawks, uh, the Broncos in that year were definitely top six going into the right? season, yeah, we're definitely top There probably some six.
0: giant Super Bowls where they weren't the top six uh, We don't six have to go right.
1: that far back, do we? Um, yeah. No, that's true. That's true. The, this, I mean, the exactly, Giants I mean, that's really that's the, that's, the,
0: that's, yep. the, that's, the, that's the baseline statistic
2: mm-hmm. that I would work with. Yep. That's historically how well this goes. Okay.
0: My suggestion to you as an analyst is that you need an example. You'd be so much more compelling right there if you say, well, what about the name?" Yeah, yeah. The Jacksonville
1: Jaguars are an obvious one. They Jaguars. almost yep. made it to the Super Bowl last season. Yeah. They're not right. in the top okay, six.
0: so we're not in the top six. So, okay, yeah. now we have... Audi. Well, we well, the
2: Eagles. We're the, we had them. Yeah, no, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So we All right, so, there, so we actually have a differential there. That's right. Because we're moving away from each other. All right, let's go back to the MLB. We talked about the Red Sox. We gave two numbers. We'll, we'll put it in context. Yeah. The, the, the forecast number is between 114 and 115, if you just project. And then there's the fan graphs or the shrunk number, which is 111 on their final number of wins. And our over-under is 111.5. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Splitting uh, the, the uh, fan graphs. Shane versus... is
0: the only one with an... Well, I don't have an informed opinion on this, oh, Shane. I
1: mean, I, I be, I, I'm not sure I have a particularly informed opinion on that projection. I'm going to go under. Um, And I think it's basically they have a relatively tough schedule coming up. Yep. They have a lot of games um, against the Yankees. Uh, they have a lot of games against uh, teams above 500. Mm-hmm. Um, I expect... You know, if you'd sort of, I mean, for example, their gap with the Yankees right now is about 10 games. If somebody told me that, gave me like an over under at the end of the season of six, I'd take the under on that too. I think they'll kind of shrink back.
0: I'm, I don't have a reason. Uh, you, yeah. get, you said that the forecasts are right at that over under, yeah. but I'm still going to go under just because it's just such extraordinary performance so far. You, that's right. right. You learn yep. to shade that stuff. Yeah, so end. I'm
2: also taking under, and I think for exactly the same reasons that you have also agreed.
0: All right, we have time All right. for one more. Time um,
2: for one more. All right, Tiger Woods. Let's see what... This is really more about updating than, than making a conclusion because it's going to be a while. 1.5 majors for the rest of Tiger Woods' career, and that's what's interesting to me, whether or not we are updating this number. Oh, Woods titles for the rest of his career. One. Over under 1.5
1: I uh, how the Tigers? <laughs> You're
2: now? starting. You want you want to let Cade know, let's let's get let's yeah. hear from Cade first yeah. because I'm, you heard. Yeah. I
0: mean, I had I do feel like I've updated his chances, but I'm still going to go under on this. I'm happy to give him one. I mean, multiple is a lot to ask, especially yeah. of an older guy. That's
1: kind of where I'm torn. I mean, I would not field
0: is field is tough. The field is really Yeah, tough if, these if, days.
1: If, if it was 0. 0.5, I would take the over, but at yeah, 1.5, I think you. I'm going to take the under yeah. two. And I'm and also I, on the under. Yeah. Do you think it'll be one or zero?
2: Uh, uh, well, if I have to make a, a forecast, my yeah. probability is zero. But I put a decent shot on that okay, one. Yeah. I give it about a third probability, okay. maybe. Good, good, and good. And that's how I, I do it. So we we uh, we wrapped it up. All there right, we go. We, we
0: got these things. The world should be happier now. We are recording our yeah. under or over predictions. We so will far, keep I've scored. got the early lead. We will have a leaderboard going forward. It only counts if you're in the studio, though. You can't make predictions offline after the show is over. That has been another Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday. Thank you to Maddie Dats and Danielle Bruno especially. Thank you from Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Kate Massey. We will be back here one week from today. Come back and join us between now and then. Enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.